Glad everybody can make it today. So here's some words I haven't said in a very long time. Today we're starting a new series. It's been over a year since I said this. But it's called Meeting Jesus at the Feast. And we've just spent the last year going through finding Christ in the Old Testament and, and going through book by book, talking about the covenants, talking about the sacrifices, all the different components of the Old Testament. We kind of read haphazardly and just, you know, have no idea how this is applicable to us in any way, shape, or form. And then we just kind of move on and we just talk about it and things like that. And so, I, you know, we spent way longer than I'd ever anticipated talking about that. But one of the things that I did when we got to the book of Exodus and Leviticus and things where we're specifically talking about these feasts, I said, I'm going to skip these for now and I'm going to come back to them later because they're extremely important and they really needed their own time and devotion. Now when I initially had said that, that would have been a year ago in March, I figured it would be a few weeks and then we'd be getting to it, not a year later. But be that as it may, here we are. When you talk about these feasts and these festivals, it's talking about um, these things that the, the Jewish folks do every year. They, they, they act these things out, they're very important to them, and there's seven of them primarily. There's two others that they do, but those weren't ordained by God necessarily, nothing wrong with them, which would be Hanukkah and Purim. But when we get into these things, we need to understand that there's a point and a purpose for everything. There is nothing in the Bible that is there by accident. All of it is by design. Every comma, every number, everything is there, direct placement by the Holy Spirit. And so when we get into this, what we're going to do is today we're going to give you kind of a brief overview and introduce the idea of what these are and where we're going. And then each and every week we're going to talk about the different ones. And then like I said, April 9th, that evening, you're going to actually watch Passover take place. And Brian will go through and show you everything down to the bread that we use and the lines and the holes and how they prepare it points to Christ. It is absolutely mind-blowing. You, you definitely want to be there. Now I have been at one of these that he's done before and it lasted four and a half hours. I have asked him very nicely, let's get the slimmed down version of that, okay? So some of you have to work on Mondays, right? Okay, so let's look at Hosea chapter 12, starting in verse 10. It says, I have also spoken by the prophets and have multiplied visions. I have given symbols through the witness of the prophets. If you read the King James, it'll say similitudes, and what he's telling here is what God is telling the prophet Hosea, and he's speaking to the people, that there are a number of ways that God speaks, but one of the things that he uses is these symbols, these things that pertain to other things. And when you talk about the Bible, there are figures of speech all the way through it. One of the questions I get asked all the time, as you guys know, I do a lot of apologetic work. Um, I, I travel a lot and get to talk about these different things of how we know the Bible is true, how we know that Jesus resurrected from the dead, how we know that the faith that we have is not just something we hope is accurate, but we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it is true. And one of the things I get asked constantly, especially by people who uh, maybe don't agree with us, is that do you take the Bible literally? In other words, does everything that the Bible says, is that a literal sense? And what I always respond with is that I don't necessarily take it literally, I take it seriously. Because there are parts of the Bible that are extremely literal, and there are parts of the Bible that have an allegorical flavor to it, and they, they're speaking of things that maybe not directly uh, connotated. So let me show you some examples of these. Because there's all these different types of languages that are used throughout Scripture. It's no different than any other book that you read. It's no different. You've got similes, all you, uh, you good English students and stuff. It, it, it's a resemblance, and there's a couple of just passages that go along with that. And then you get into some allegorical works and, and stuff, and you get into metaphors. And there's a big fun one for you. I had actually looked that word up because I had not seen that one before. 
There's another name for it, but I can't remember how to spell it, so we went with this one. But I mean, it's this resemblance, it's this representation. Of course, we know what types are. That's the one we hear about the most when we talk about Scripture, that there are types as a figure or an example of something future, which is what we're going to primarily focus on here over the next few weeks. And of course, an analogy, which is a resemblance in some particular between things that would typically be unlike one another. And so when we talk about these different types of languages that are used in Scripture, everything is there for a reason. In Romans chapter 15, in verse 4, it says, For whatever things were written before, excuse me, for whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. What is he saying? What is Paul telling us here? That everything that was written down before is written for our learning so that we can understand that. This is referring back to the Old Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11. It says, now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the end of the ages have come. These things were examples to you and I of how things work, how we are to pertain them to our life. And there are a lot of these, okay? Let me give you just a few examples. And we have talked about pretty much all of these in that last series that we did. The brazen altar in Revelation chapter 11 is a type of something. It is pointing to something bigger than itself. The Ark of the Covenant is not just some box that was thrown together. It had extreme significance. The mercy seat, which is what sat on top of the Ark of the Covenant, the very throne of God. The water from the rock in 1 Corinthians 10 refers back to that where Moses beat the rock and water came out. Again, that's all symbolic. The manna, the brazen serpent, ultimately the Passover lamb, and even the camp of Israel and how it was laid out in the book of Numbers all points to something greater than itself. That these aren't just there for no reason, that they have a purpose. So I want to look at a couple of these. Now some of, the, for some of y'all, this is going to be review because we've talked about this in the last 12 months. For some of you, you may not remember because you may have dozed off during that portion of the sermon, but some of you maybe weren't here, so we'll just go with that one because nobody falls asleep in here, right? So anyway, let's let's look at the brazen serpent. Let's start with that one. And Numbers chapter 21 is this extremely obscure passage. It seems to be set in the middle of nowhere. It seems to not correspond with anything around it. Numbers chapter 21 and verse 4. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea, their their fleeing is Egypt, to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people. And many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And so Moses prayed for the people, and then the Lord said to Moses, Here's what I want you to do. Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, he put it on a pole, and so it was, if the serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Now, as I said, some of this is review, but this is obscure, okay? So here's the deal. The, this is the shocking part. The Israelites are whining, right? Because they never do that ever, right? Pretty much all the time. You're going to see that in several places. But they're whining. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? At least in Egypt, we had food. At least in Egypt, we had water. Life was good. Yeah, we were slaves. We were being beaten. We were being killed. But, you know, it wasn't all bad. Grass is always greener, right? 
And so what does God do? He sends judgment on the people. That's where these serpents come in. Now, I, again, I've seen artist renditions where these were little snakes that were lit on fire. That is not what that is, okay? They were not fire-bearing snakes. When they would bite somebody, the bite would burn just like you would be today if you get bit by something poisonous. And ultimately, it would kill you. And so the people in this realize, oh my goodness, what have we done? We need to repent. They go to Moses. What is Moses? He's the mediator. He's the one that he's to go between, between the people of Israel and God. And so they said, please go talk to God. And so they do, or he does. He goes up there. He talks to God. God, what do we do? The people are repenting. He says, all right, here's what I want you to do. And this is where it gets weird. I want you to make a bronze serpent on a pole. I want you to go up on the hill. I want you to stick the thing in the air. And then if anybody gets bitten, all they got to do is go and look at this bronze serpent, and they're going to be fine. They will live, okay? And that's all it says. You read past it, it doesn't talk anymore about it. You read the rest of the Old Testament, you'll never see this mentioned again, except one time during the time of King Hezekiah, where the Israelites started to worship the stupid thing, so he had to destroy it. Other than that, never mentioned again, and it's weird. But Jesus actually mentions it. In John chapter 3, the most famous chapter in the entire Bible, and ultimately verse 16, but we're going to start in John chapter 3 and verse 1. It says, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now remember, the Pharisees were the keepers of the law. They were kind of the uh, higher up in the religious system. And they were the ones that were giving Jesus a pretty hard time. After, with the apostles and all that later on, after Jesus has gone, uh, gone back to heaven, it's the Sadducees, the opposites. That they were the humanists, the naturalists. They didn't believe in anything supernatural. These guys were the law abiders, if you will. Verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. He came to him by night because he didn't want anybody else to see him. That's why. Jesus answered and said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen. And you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, Nicodemus comes with good questions because Jesus is sitting there saying, he wants to know how he gets to heaven. Jesus says, oh, you got to be born again. Now, if we didn't know that terminology, I don't think it's an unfair question to ask. Like, okay, you want me to step into my mother's womb? I mean, some of you guys have seen my mother. I am now 5'10 and, and uh, 245 pounds. My mother would be destroyed if I attempted that. So it's not an unfair question. How, 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 right? We throw this church stuff around like it's nothing. I mean, it's like we say, hey, somebody needs to give their life to Christ. It's one of the things we say, well, you need to be washed in the blood. Well, if they've never been in church, they don't know what that means. And that's, that's the high time to get out of there, right? There'll be none of that today. 
But so he's asking these questions, and Jesus is actually getting on to him. And the reason he's getting on to him is because he's a Pharisee. He's a teacher of Israel who knows the Scriptures because there is nothing new that Jesus brought on the scene that wasn't in the Old. The Old Testament is the foundation upon which the New Testament is built. He should have known these things, and he certainly should recognize who Jesus is as the Son of God because all the signs are there and everything that they should have been looking for. But then he makes that statement in verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He's making a connection. This is the only other place that this thing is ever mentioned. But what's he saying? That that serpent that Moses lifted up is a type of Christ. That when you study this out and you begin to look at all of these things, when we see a serpent in the Scriptures, it's always associated with what? was sin, right? In Genesis chapter 3, we're introduced to the serpent. What happens? He causes the people to sin. Death enters in the world, as does sickness and a lot of other bad things. But bronze is always associated with judgment. You've got the, the bronze altar upon which all the sacrifices were made. Bronze used all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament is associated with judgment. So you have sin being judged on a hill and many... Uh, Experts seem to think that that very hill that they put that on is the same hill on which Jesus died on the cross. So you begin to make these connections. He's telling us. But look at what the event is. What happened when they looked upon this serpent with Moses? It says they will not die, right? What did he say in verse 15? That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. They're ultimately going to have a physical death. We know that. But if they're born again, they'll only die once. And then, of course, we get into the most famous verse in all the Bible. Thanks for the football teams and all that stuff that put this out there. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. In other words, you could take that word perish out and you say, will not die. It was a picture of the work of Christ from the very beginning. Did Moses know that when he was putting that thing together? Probably not. But why was that written down? For our admonition, for our learning, so that we could know. You guys see how that works? Let me do one more with you, okay? The water from the rock. Again, this often gets overlooked, but it's a very powerful event that takes place during the time of the Exodus. In Exodus chapter 17, and we'll start in verse 1. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel sat out on on their journey from the wilderness of sin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. That contended means they whine, they yell, they they complain. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water. And the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it that you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Here they are again, right? I mean, when you're good at something, stick with it, right? Whining is what they were good at. So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? 
Now, here we see, what did, what did God tell them to do? They needed water. He said, I want you to take that rod, and I want you to go, and I want you to strike the rock. And water flew out of it, right? That's exactly what the story tells us about. Okay, we're going to see this event take place again later on in Numbers chapter 20. We're going to start in verse 1. Then the children of Israel, the whole congregation, came in the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. Now there was no water for the congregation, so they gathered together against Moses and Aaron, and the people contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. Why have you brought up the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness, that we and our animals should die? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there any water to drink. So Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and they fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together. Speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. And you should bring water from out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe me, to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Now you've got two different events, and you've got two different commands, but both produce the same result. Ultimately, they got water. In the first event in the book of Exodus, he's told to strike the rock, and he does so. But the second one, he was told to speak to the rock. In other words, ask the rock to give forth its water, but he's kind of ticked off at the people. And really, who can blame him? I mean, I'd be, you know, these guys would be wearing me out quick. So instead of speaking to the rock, he struck the rock, but the water still came out. What's the big deal? Well, apparently, it's a very big deal, because God tells him, because you've done this, because you've disobeyed me, you will not get to take the people into the promised land. The land that was promised to them back when Abraham was there. He pulls them out of Egypt. He's supposed to take them in. It's the land flowing with milk and honey. It's the place where they want to be. He's not going to get to do this. Why is God being so harsh on this? It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that we see this. We kind of get an, a, a response there. Do I have that up there? I do. Good. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse, over, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses, in the cloud, and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Now let's break this down for a moment. Because in this short passage here, Paul is explaining the three types of baptism that you see in Scripture. You've got they were baptized into Moses. Moses was a type of Jesus. That would be what we call salvation. Then they got the baptism in the cloud. The cloud always points to the Holy Spirit. The baptism in the Holy Spirit. And then the third one, of course, is the sea. The going through the Red Sea was a type of the baptism that we see when we go into water. So there's three types of baptism mentioned in the Scripture. But then it says they all ate the same spiritual food. What are they talking about there? Manna. Manna had been provided for them. It's all that same spiritual food. And they all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock. 
What are we talking about? We're pointing back to that rock. Now, then it tells us something weird. That followed them. Did you guys ever buy a pet rock when you were a kid? Back when they, like somebody was brilliant. They sold rocks. Did it ever follow you? This is what it's telling us here, guys. Now, I know that seems weird, and I seems that a, a little obscure, but it says that it followed them, and then it tells us who that rock was. That rock was Christ. Now, let's go back to that story. Now, why is it a big deal? He was supposed to strike it the first time. He was supposed to speak to it the second time. Well, we know now that that rock was a picture of Christ. It was Christ. Had Moses followed exactly the way God him to do this we would have another type pointing to the entire first coming of christ and ultimately the subsequent events that follows let me show you this okay when christ came the first time what had to happen in order for that living water to flow he had to be struck right he had to be crushed as, as in isaiah 53 says he was crushed for our iniquities he was bruised for our sin right this happens the first time but once that's happened, do you, does he ever have to be struck again in order for the living water to flow out of him? The answer is no. How do you get it from there? You simply ask. You guys see how that works? If Moses had followed this, and this is why it was a big deal, this would have pointed exactly to Jesus and, the, and the, what we see. That living water that, that we talked about, we just talked about this last week. How it flows out of the temple in Ezekiel. It was flowing and it just continued. And it brought life to those things that were dead. It's the same thing that lives inside of you and me. Christ never has to be crucified again. It was one sacrifice once and for all. The perfect offerer and the perfect offering. He himself did all of that. So you guys see how these types work, and they're all pointing. I know that's a lot of, of hubbub to get to where we're going today. But the bottom line, I want to make sure that you understand that as we go forward, because there's a lot of this when we get into these feasts, because Jesus is in every aspect of that. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17, it says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law, till all is fulfilled. Jesus is making a declaration here. A yacht is how you actually say it, or tittle, would be like the dotting of the I and the crossing of the T. It's this little mark on the, in the Hebrew language that if we saw it, we would just assume somebody kind of overwrote with the pen because it's, it's so minuscule. But what he is saying is that I didn't come here to destroy it. I came to fulfill it. Now, there's a big difference in that because by fulfilling something, what does that mean? He brings it to completion, right? So that's what he said he came to do. He said none of this will pass until all has been fulfilled. So in order to get into this, to see where we're going with this, we need to go back to Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning. Now most people, when they teach on the festivals and things like that, never go here, but I want to show you something. In Genesis chapter 1, in verse 14, it says, Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night. We always make that singular, right? It's plural. And let them be for signs and for seasons, and for days and for years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, so the evening and morning were the fourth day. We're on day four out of day six of creation. Day seven, he took the day off. 
right? But it gives us a list here, if we break this down, of the purposes of this light. So let's look at this. There's six of them, okay? It's to divide the day from the night was number one. Then the second thing it says is for signs and for seasons. Then it gives for days and for years. It's there to give light on the earth. It's there to rule over the day and to rule over the night. And, of course, to divide the light from the darkness. Now, I didn't put this passage in here, and I can't think of the specific reference, guys. But darkness is not simply the absence of light. Darkness was created, and there's a passage in Scripture. If I can think of it, I'll tell you what it is. That says God created the light, and He created the darkness. And scientists today are now proving that darkness has physical properties to it in and of itself. Now, we could spend days talking about light and the different things and how God created and all of that. But I want to focus on number two in that list. The signs and the seasons. In verse 14, it said, God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons. And of course, ultimately for days and for years. But that's signs and seasons. When we hear that, what do we think of? Most people, when they read this, like, oh, that's the four seasons, right? The spring, the summer, the fall, and the winter. In the state of Missouri, apparently, you can add a fifth season of, you get them all, we don't know what it's going to be, it's all a big surprise. There's snow in the forecast next week, folks. It's 76 degrees today. Oh, Lord help us. Anyway, but we assume that. We read that, we think it's the four seasons. But let me ask you this, what does light have to do with the four seasons? Nothing. Has absolutely nothing. Let me show you this here. The Hebrew word for signs is the word oth. O-T-H. Now this is the direct uh, uh, translation, and this is the senses in which it was used. Now what does that say? Mark, banners, emblems, tokens. Here's how it's used, a design, a banner, a cup, an event, a reminder, a reference point. That's what the first one is. That's signs. Seasons comes from the word moed. Now look at this, appointed times, appointed feast, feast, time, set feast, set time, season, appointed meeting place. That's the translation, here's the usage. You've got the assembly, the appointed time, appointed time, appointed season, signal, tent of meeting. In Psalm chapter 104 and verse 19, it says, He appointed the moon for seasons. The sun knows it's going down. The moon for seasons. Same word, moed. It means the appointed times. Now, you want to take a guess when, we talk, when it talks about these feasts and these festivals, what that means? It's actually the same word that means appointed times. So in other words, from the very beginning, God knew that this was all going to be laid out. And all of that, the lights, the moon, and you're going to see that here momentarily, are for the appointed times. These are very significant. That's why we're spending so much time laying this foundation. So let's get into this. There are seven appointed times listed in the Scripture. Okay? There are three spring feasts. There are three fall feasts. And there's the one in the middle called Pentecost. In the spring, you've got Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits. In the fall, you have trumpets, the Day of Atonements, and tabernacles. And we're going to go through each and every one of these. Now, most of us, especially because we're somewhat of a charismatic church, know what Pentecost is. That's when the Holy Spirit came down, right? Absolutely. But it has more to do with that feast than just simply that. But all of it was pointing to ahead of time. And we know what Passover is because you know what we call Passover in America? Easter. Not the same. Completely different. 
But what's interesting is when you study this out, and this is what you're going to see, when Jesus came the first time, he happened to fulfill every one of these. When he returns the second time, you're going to see every one of these fulfilled. And that's where it gets interesting, and this is why it's important. Because you remember, when Jesus rode on that donkey and he rode into Jerusalem, and he starts crying, and he looks and he said, because you did not recognize the sign that was in front of you, in other words, him going in, the donkey, how it was all fulfilling prophecy, that the destruction of Jerusalem came in 70 A.D. Now, as I said, there were two holidays that are celebrated that we'll discuss later as Purim and Hanukkah. We'll go into all of that later. But, but here's the deal. Here's part of the reason that we don't understand this, is that we follow what's called a Gregorian calendar. The Gregorian calendar was named after Pope Gregory VIII in 1582. Yeah, a picture of the guy there, good-looking guy. That's the actual Latin thing that they use to uh, say, hey, we're going to follow this calendar now. If you can read Latin, I'd be happy to ha- let you translate that for me. But this is not a lunar calendar. This is a solar calendar. It's based on the rotation of the sun. It operates on the principle of the earth revolving around the sun. I said the rotation of the sun. Sun standing still. We're revolving around it. I said that backwards. But our days begin at midnight, and they go for 24 hours. How many days are in a year? 365 and one-fourth, right? Because we've got to get in leap here. But the biblical calendar is different. It's a lunar calendar. You guys remember what Psalm 104 said? He appointed the moon for seasons. Okay? It's a lunar calendar. It's based on the movement of the moon moving around the earth. Their days begin at sundown, so approximately 6 p.m. And they'll last for 24 hours, and there's 29 and a half days in a month. And there are 354 days in a lunar year, and they'll have a leap year as well because, you know, uh, as the second law of thermodynamics says, they are going to, it's running down, it's slowing down. But he appointed the moon for season. This is the calendar. But they actually run off of two calendars, the sacred calendar and the civil calendar. Oh, it's kind of messed up there, so you can't really see it very well. I love it when things don't transfer correctly, but that's all right. So in the civil calendar here, it starts with the month of Tishri. And the religious calendar is the month of Nisan. And when you follow these down, you'll see Nisan here. They're all the same names, but they're in different orders. So there's Nisan, Ayer, Sivan, and then the rest of them didn't transfer very, very well there. But there are 12 of them. I'll read you the list. Tishri. Cheshvan, Kislev, Tevet, Shevet, Adar, Nisan, Eyar, Sivan, Tammuz, Av, and Elul. The calendar changes in Exodus chapter 12. In Exodus chapter 12 and verse 2 says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Prior to that, it was, gonna, it was running off the old one. So this first month of the year is the month of Nisan. It's our March to April, somewhere in that range. It's a little different. Originally, it was called Abib, but during the Babylonian captivity, which we just went through, they actually changed it to Nisan. The civil calendar was based off the agricultural season, a lot like what we do here, right? Our seasons are based around the planting and all of that. It has a lot to do with agriculture. And it begins in the month of Tishri, which would be our September, October. The spring rains, or what they would call the latter rains, fell in March and, and April. They would be concurrent with the barley harvest. And so they would go through basically four different seasons. They've got the dry season, which ran from May to October. They've got the grape harvest, which was in June to July. The olive harvest, which was always in August. And the fig harvest, which ran into August and to September. In Exodus chapter 12, when he's telling it this will be the first day of the month, you know what they're about ready to do there? Starting Passover, the very first Passover. Okay? That's why I was telling it. That's significant. We'll get into that next week as we get into Passover. In Leviticus chapter 3, 
In verse 1, it says this, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, The feast of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocation. These are my feast. That word feast there, moed, appointed times. Convocation comes from the word mikra, which means rehearsal. What were they rehearsing for? Interesting, isn't it? They're rehearsing because all of these are going to point to Jesus, every one of them. Okay? Three times a year, every able-bodied Jewish male would have to go to Jerusalem to celebrate these feasts. In Deuteronomy 16, verse 16, Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, which is Pentecost, and at the Feast of Tabernacles. And they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you. I've got an image here to, th to throw up. But again, you see this here, okay? Unleavened bread, Pentecost, tabernacles. Those three, they would have to refer back. They'd always go back to Jerusalem if they could. And it, had, it was the men, not always the family traveled with them. And you, you're going to see some of this stuff because they would start to have the, uh, the bigger that the nation got, the more people traveling. They'd start to keep the lambs there in Jerusalem. They'd sell them the money changers. All that kind of stuff was going on. But all of this is leading up to something, guys, and this is what I want you to see. We're looking at the types and the shadows. They're pointing to Christ. When you start seeing these words and you get into the language where it talks about the appointed times, the place, the meeting with the word feast, the convocations, that these are rehearsals. You don't rehearse with no purpose. There's a purpose for all of this. It's all pointing to, to Jesus. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 16, it says, Let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. What were they rehearsing? Everything they were doing was the shadow, but Jesus was the fulfillment. I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. He was the fulfillment of that shadow. He was the reason they rehearsed for so many years, and they're still rehearsing. They just don't realize that the substance has been here. It's powerful stuff, guys. I encourage you to make sure that you're here as much as possible. We do get them recorded and up online, but I'm telling you, it, this stuff is life-altering when you begin to see how powerful Scripture is. Now, I will give you a word of warning before we get into this, because some of this stuff gets taught, and people go off the deep end with it. Where they're like, well, we need to be keeping all of these, and we should be aware of them, and we should certainly respect them and understand them and learn from them, but in no way do we need to just have a Passover dinner or do the Feast of Tabernacles where you go outside of your house and you build a, a structure out of sticks to where you can still see in the stars and sleep out there because it's in the fall. It'll be a little chilly, okay? But, but people go off the deep end, and I have watched good people who love God and were just simply trying to please Him get a hold of something like this and they go and they go further and they start digging and there are a lot of really heretical teachers that teach this type of stuff out there that are now leading people away from Christ. They begin to question, was Jesus really the fulfillment of all of this? Was Jesus really the Messiah? And I know that seems extreme, but the last church I was in, I watched it happen. So guys, I just encourage you guys, everything, everything centers around Jesus, everything. So next week, we will get into Passover, and I'm going to show you what they did and how Christ fulfilled it. And then in a couple of weeks, you guys will actually get to experience that firsthand. It'll be really cool.